Vint is the first fully transparent wine investment platform genuinely accessible to everyone. For less than $100, you can own SEC-qualified shares of the best wines in the world. The Vint Wine Investment Podcast offers up-to-date information on the world of wine and investing, as well as current perspectives on our collections and the wine markets in general. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Vint Wine Investment Podcast. My name is Billy Galenko, and I'm the head of wine here at Vint. We have an exciting podcast for you guys today. First, the launch of a new collection, our Piemonte collection. And then next, we have our very first producer interview. We had the opportunity to sit down with the minds behind Troth Wines from Washington State. Uh, this is a new ultra-premium wine coming from the Horse Heaven Hills. Uh, we had the opportunity to speak with Jeff Andrews, whose family owns vineyards where the grapes are grown, and Ray McKee, who is the chief winemaker at Troth. Uh, there's a lot more to come. Very interesting. Uh, they get really into kind of pulling the curtain back on what goes into really high-end viticulture and farming, as well as what goes on in the winery to make these super high-end Cabernets and other wines. Uh, before we dive into the interview, though, I definitely want to touch on the exciting Vint news, the launch of our Piemonte collection. Uh, this is a collection of basically the top names in Barbaresco and Barolo. Piemonte, also known as Piedmont, is a region in northwestern Italy, uh, right at the foot of the Alps in an area called the Longhe Hills. Wine has been made in this area for centuries. Um, many varietals are still grown there, but the most famous and most sought-after wines are made from the Nebbiolo grape. Uh, wines from these grapes are very tannic, um, can be high in acid, but at the same time, they're some of the most complex and interesting wines in the world, uh, certainly some of the most ageable. Um, Barolo over the years has actually even been called the, the wine of kings and the king of wines. So these are really important wines in the collector space. Uh, they're very interesting wines just for drinking in general. And they're um, just now really coming into kind of their own uh, they've been kind of having a renaissance over a number of decades now, and recently a string of really great vintages has kind of put them back on the map, and we'll touch on that a little bit later. But first, let's dive into the wines that are featured in this collection. Uh, we'll start out with a Barolo from Luciano Sandrone, his La Vigna 2016. Next, we move to a Barbaresco from Bruno Giacosa, his Reserva Asili 2016. Next comes Giuseppe Rinaldi's Barolo Le Coste 2006, uh, followed by Vietti Zilero Barolo Reserva, which is a 2013. And last but not least, we have two wines from Giacomo Conterno, uh, both his Monfortino from 2014 and 2013. Um, you obviously notice kind of the, the order, the syntax of these names. First comes the producer. Um, most of these are from Barolo, except for the Bruno Giacosa, which is from Barbaresco. You might also notice there's been a second name, um, along with the term Barolo and Reserva, basically saying where the wine's from and kind of how long it's been aged. Uh, there's another name, so like the Giacomo Conterno Monfortino, or the Giuseppe Rinaldi Le Coste. Um, this is basically one of two things. It's either the fanciful name, kind of the name that the winemaker decided to call this collection of wines that has been sourced from multiple vineyards, 
or it's the name of the single vineyard itself from which these wines, uh, the grapes were grown for these wines. In this sense, Piemonte has actually drawn a lot of parallels to Burgundy. Uh, there's a lot of importance put on vineyards, even when it is a blend um, of multiple vineyards, which, um, for example, the La Vigne by Sandrone, um, they still make a point of calling out which vineyards the grapes actually originated from. Because Piemonte, just like Burgundy, has a bunch of really unique different microclimates and soil types that really help shape the nebbiolo that's grown in each soil. The two wines in this collection that are grown from single vineyards are Giacosa's Azili. Um, Azili is one of the most famous vineyards in all of Barbaresco, and Vieri's Vilero, another famous vineyard in Barolo. The multi-vineyard wines, we'll start with Rinaldi. Um, it is Lacoste. Um, that is actually one of the vineyards the fruit is sourced from, uh, it, but it is also sourced from another vineyard called Brunate. Uh, so that's kind of just a two-vineyard wine. And then moving on to Centurone and Conterno, both of those wines are meant, they're sourced from multiple vineyards and they're meant to really show you the best of what Barolo can do. It takes, uh, grapes from different vineyards and different aspects and different soil types and really tries to create this collective vision of what the perfect Barolo could really be in any one year. Um, moving on again from the producers themselves, we're going to touch on a couple of the key points for the collection. First and foremost, we have the scores for the wines in this collection. All of these wines have received 97 points or more from Robert Parker's Wine Advocate, and three of the wines have scored 100 points. The Sandrone and the Conterno were scored 100 points by Robert Parker's Wine Advocate. Um, it was the Conterno 2014, and the Giacosa was scored 100 points by James Suckling. The next key point to keep in mind is that trade by value of Barolo wines has skyrocketed in the past six years alone. Um, in 2015, Barolo, by volume, the trade in the secondary market on LiveX, made up only 6.8 of all Italian wines traded by value. Now in 2021, these are last year's stats, they make up over 32.4% of wine traded by value on LiveX. So what you can see here is that both merchants and collectors are coming together, coalescing around the fact that these wines are really highly collectible, number one, but number two, they've had such a good string of vintages, which we're about to touch on in a second, that they're competing with some of the best wines in the world, whether it be from Bordeaux or Burgundy or the Rhone Valley, and really making a name for themselves. And again, so last but not least, it is these vintages I've been talking about. Uh, we were coming on two decades plus of some of the best vintages that Piemonte has seen. To this point, Raj Parr notes in the sommelier's Atlas of Taste that it's actually the best time to be drinking Piemontese wines, whether it be Barolo or Barbaresco, really ever in history. There are some of these old wines that are just now rounding into form and becoming drinkable after being made in the style that needed decades of maturation. But there's also a bunch of these wines that have been made since 1990 and kind of this blend of an old new style that are really benefiting from these amazing recent vintages. Uh, this collection that we have right now features a couple of these stellar vintages, actually three. Uh, the 2016 vintage, the 2013 vintage, and the 2006 vintage. Um, not included in this is also a stellar 2010, um, and there have been other really high-caliber vintages in between. In the past decade, for example, everybody thought the 2010 vintage was possibly going to be the vintage of basically the century, and it only took three years for 2013 to kind of come around and 
compete up there with that same level of quality. And then 2016, which was just released last year, uh, again, is now trumping these 2013. So the vintages are only getting more consistent. The wine's getting even better. So this is really what's causing collectors around the world to kind of sit up and take notice and really start seriously collecting these Piemonte wines. So now that you know why these wines are so special, if you're interested in investing in our collection, the collection is live right now. Uh, shares are available for $50 a piece. There are 3,090 total shares, and the total collection size is just over $154,000. Um, so feel free to reach out with any additional questions. I'm happy to answer them directly if you want to email me at billy at vent.co or just shoot us a note in our chat box on the website, and we'll get back to you as quickly as we can. Thanks a lot, and enjoy the interview with Jeff and Ray from Trove. Cheers. All right, we'd like to welcome a couple of special guests, Jeff Andrews and Ray McKee today. Um, they both are heavily involved in the Washington State wine industry, working at uh, Andrews Family Vineyards, I believe it's called, but also uh, through their new project and wine line called Troth. So we have them on today to both dive into a little bit more about their backgrounds and what Troth is and where their vision is for uh, not only that wine, um, but Washington State wine in the future. So welcome, guys. Hey, thank you. Uh, we really appreciate you having us on your podcast. Yeah, so I think before we we dive in, obviously, about Troth, could you share a little bit more about your, your family's work in farming in Washington State there, Jeff? And then I'd love to dive in a little bit about Ray and how you guys came to be working together. Absolutely. Yeah, so the Andrews family can trace its farming heritage back uh, 129 years in Washington State uh, and 80 years, uh, four generations here in the Horse Seven Hills, where we're currently farming today. Uh, and, and that's where I grew up here in the Horse Seven Hills. It's a, it's a wide open, uh, vast, rugged terrain, uh, 30 miles from anywhere. Um, so, you know, it's very, very rural. But, you know, what we lack in, you know, urban amenities we make up for in what I'd say is a deep connection to our land. Uh, so my great-grandfather bought our land in the early 1940s. Um, he'd been working for other farmers in the area, saving up over the years, and, and finally got the opportunity to buy this old piece of ground that uh, really nobody wanted at the time. It was one of the driest uh, areas in the Horse Heaven Hills in terms of rainfall, uh, produced really meager dryland wheat crops, and, and the family really struggled to to make it on those for quite a while. And Around the late 1950s, uh, he and my grandfather partnered up to to drill one of the first wells in the interior of the Horse Seven Hills, and they hit uh, this amazing artesian well that produced 4,000 gallons a minute, which uh, if you're not familiar with, with the flow of a well, I mean, that's an incredible amount of water, uh, which was great. It changed everything for the family. We were able to start irrigating, uh, put in uh, irrigated wheat and cattle, and did that for a while. And then uh, about 1979, 1980, uh, my grandfather, Bob Andrews and uncle, uh, they partnered up and put in the family's first wine grapes and the family's, uh, plantings and wine grapes grew as the Washington wine industry grew. Uh, we gained expertise, uh, of course, in the field over that time, really got to know our land. And so, uh, about 2006, I, I graduated from uh, law school. I'd finished up in the Marine Corps and I came back to the family property and, uh, as I spent some time here, 
I mean, I already knew our uh, family had an incredible attention to detail, always held ourselves to the highest standards, no matter what crop we were growing. And I began to see that we were doing that, of course, in, in our wine grapes and producing fantastic grapes for, for our customers who are going on to win all sorts of accolades and awards. And so ultimately, I asked myself about 2018, what would happen if we you know, started our own winery and held ourselves to those same exacting standards? And the answer was troth. Ray, do you want to touch on how you got connected with Jeff and what your role is in um, making these troth wines? Yeah. Um, my winemaking career has always been in Washington. My parents had a winery they started when I was still in high school. And um, after I ran away to college to get away from it, uh, I came back for a vintage in 94 and realized uh, everything I really wanted out of my career and even my life I, you know, was was right there in front of me. So I, I dove in with headfirst, both feet and all that into Washington wines and, and learning and tasting and trying to become the best winemaker I could. Um, I love our grapes. I love our region. To me, they provide practically perfect grapes. And although I made a vintage over in Australia when I was uh, pretty early in my career, I never really wanted to be anywhere else but here. So it's been a, a pretty awesome time to be in the Washington wine industry. Uh, you know, I got to hang around and learn from a lot of our pioneers, you know, the people we call the godfather of Washington and the, you know, people like David Lake, uh, master of wine who made wine all through the seventies. I was able to, to mentor and work with them. And a lot of the people that started our wine industry, as well as, you know, grow up with a whole lot of the, the people in our industry now who are uh, leading us forward into the future. So it's a really amazing time for me personally to be a, a part of the wine industry here. And um, I made wine at a lot of small wineries and a lot of big wineries. Um, I was a red winemaker at Chateau Saint-Michel for 10 years. And it was a, a fantastic time, but I always knew I needed to be, you know, where my heart truly was. And that's uh, with my boots dirty and my hands bread and, and making and crafting wines at a small level. So I came back to that in 2018 and it was really um, just, it was serendipity. It was almost perfect timing, which for me has always been just saying yes to opportunities that come up um, and hardly ever saying no. So uh, Jeff uh, literally reached out through LinkedIn and started a conversation because although I'd worked with his grips for about 10 years, um, I don't think that we had each other's phone numbers, <laughs> um, but we connected and he talked about this wine that he wanted to make. Um, and I immediately said, absolutely. Yes. Because the, the, the concept and the vision of what it could be just sprang almost full form into my brain. Um, and in our conversations about Trove, uh, you know, I realized that, Jeff was 100% had the same ideas that I had. So it was a, just a great start to try to make um, a world-class Cabernet. Awesome. So I, I think that leads me into two questions. One would be kind of, why do you think in the, the core down to it, why Washington State produces such interesting fruit um, and why you can make these world-class wines? And then in your opinion, kind of what goes into making you know, I, I know Jeff mentioned earlier, not not cutting any corners and, you know, basically using the best fruit that he was selling elsewhere. So 
what, what goes into making these award-winning wines once you're able to source such great fruit? Yeah, for me, why Washington? Uh, well, a couple of reasons. This this is where we're at. This is the family property that, that we've been on for, as I said, four generations that we are dedicated to uh, stewarding uh, from one generation to the next. And to begin with, it was very fortuitous for us to find out that we could not only grow wine grapes here, but we could grow world-class wine grapes. And so um, that's part of it. Uh, another part is that uh, Washington is unique. And within Washington, the Horse Seven Hills is, is incredibly unique for its terroir, its uh, its landscape. The soil profile is different than, than a lot of other places in the state. Uh, the, the heat units that we need, uh, the hours of sunlight, the, the precipitation, all these things come together to create a unique growing environment that, that vines like Cabernet can thrive in. Um, Ray, I don't know if you want to touch on why Washington for you. Those are the reasons. Uh, I think our climate, soil, sunshine, lack of rainfall, you know, there's a whole another conversation there but we we average between four and maybe five inches of rain and we can irrigate um we're own rooted uh all of these things add up to the quality of the wine grape um reaching almost a perfection if you will i don't think anything's ever perfect but vintage after vintage the wine grapes contain everything that you need to craft an incredible wine that's my point of view as a winemaker that's why washington for me i think that makes a lot of sense and i i didn't know actually you guys are is it 100 percent own rooted a large percentage of the state is own rooted we have minimal phylloxera pressures and even in areas where you know we're experiencing some of it it is new and we've been had grapes in the ground in some of these areas since the 70s and then there are so many factors that go into uh, inhibiting phylloxera from, I mean, we were down in the single digits for a healthy amount of time just about two weeks ago, uh, as well as the soil profile, lack of water, lack of clay in our soil, all these add up to, to allow these own rooted vines to thrive. I mean, we have 30 plus year old vines on our property. Wow. Yeah. So for our listeners who don't know, phylloxera is, um, uh, like a, a louse, a small bug that um, eats away at the roots of of vines. Um, it it killed a lot of a lot of the vineyards in Europe in the late 1800s. Um, and basically, the solution is to graft um, European or Vitis vinifera grapes onto American rootstock. So when we're saying own rooted, these are basically as original as you can get vines. You know, as they were, you know, before the late 1800s in Europe. So that's really exciting. Um, I, I guess for me, what I was I was looking into for Washington right now is I think over the years, the reputation has steadily grown. Um, and I, I think the quality of the fruit and the wines have been undeniable, but there haven't really been those those big cult players or those big followings for some of these wines, um, even though the, the caliber of wine has been there. So I think there, um, I guess this is another kind of two-part question, but what goes in, you know, once you get the fruit, how are you making this, you know, the trying to make the best wine you can what what goes into that compared to maybe um you know some other approaches to wine and then the other part is um as you seek to elevate the brand in the fine wine space what kind of goes into building this 
this 360 package, you know, the, the bottle, the brand, the wine, so that it all, you know, kind of coalesces at this certain high level and everybody has this, this high end experience you're going for and what, what goes into making a wine like that? Well, yeah, Jeff, I'll, I'll jump in on just on the winemaking part first. Um, you know, getting the grapes into the, the bottle as world-class, um, that is a tremendous amount of effort really. And, and when I talked about Jeff and I and the, our meeting of the minds about Troth, we agreed on that from the very beginning. If we're going to make this wine, we might as well go all of the way. And uh, one of the things I learned when I started falling in love with wines and winemakers, there were a, a couple I really loved the wine and um, talking there, you know, them talking about what they do, if they both said in slightly different way the same thing they said all of the things that everyone in the winemaking community and the grape growing community say that they do i simply do them i haven't invented any new processes there's no secret formulas but everyone says for example that they prune to low volumes and they touch every vine and they monitor the health of the vines and they call out you know, green fruit, et cetera. And on the winemaking side, they say, you know, we, we put only the best berries in, et cetera, et cetera. And they, they both believed in that same philosophy. Everything I actually do, and that's the key to the quality. That was what I wanted to try. You know, I had never quite been able to in my career. There's always reasons why. At bigger wineries, of course, it's you can't. Uh, you can make really good wine, but you cannot control or, you know, at least be taking note of every detail of the vineyard and every detail of your winemaking. It's just too large. But at the small level, you can. Um, now, wine is really, really forgiving, especially red wine. So you don't need to and still come up with a pretty good wine. But our philosophy and actually our actions are to pay attention to every single one of them. And then the quality flows through that process. First, I was really glad you kind of mentioned those accolades about the state. Um, our area, the Horse Seven Hills, is directly responsible for at least five 100-point wines. Um, Washington's only wine spectator-rated number one wine in the world uh, was sourced in large part from our vineyards, uh, our, our Cabernet Block that makes up the backbone of Trode. Uh, so we do have, as a state and as, and as a region... Uh, lots of accolades, but you're right. We're still relatively new and undiscovered. Um, and so as part of that, uh, this age of discovery, we, we have to embrace this and we have to elevate not only what we're doing in the vineyard and the winery to, to make it, uh, to make ourselves, uh, elevate ourselves, excuse me, stumble over my words a little bit to, to that next level. And, and there's no room for error when you are in the process of elevating to that next level because uh, people will, will dismiss you if you don't don't meet the standards that you say you're going to meet. So uh, in the vineyard, like Ray said, we take a no excuses approach. Uh, we do the things that need to be done. One thing that is key to producing uh, extraordinarily high quality wines is timeliness in the vineyard. Uh, those plants, you know, don't stop and take a break and wait for you to come to them and do the work that needs to be done. Uh, they keep growing and going through the cycle. And so if if we as uh, our vineyard crew or vineyard managers miss a window, uh, we've lost an opportunity to to create the best wine that we can. And you don't really know what you've missed 
but you do know that you've missed it. And so if you create a wine that's missing a little something, you have to go back, look at the season and see, well, did I do all the things that I needed to do? And if you didn't, you don't have a chance to correct it until the next season. This is a one shot per year uh, business. And so you can't mess around with it. Um, something else I was going to add, making a world-class wine is, it's a lot like, you know, a professional athlete, you know, Tom Brady, he didn't earn seven Super Bowl rings by going out and saying, oh, I'm going to be a pretty good football player. Uh, you know, Michael Jordan and his, his six championships, same thing. They took themselves to the next level by doing what they needed to do every single day during the main part of the season and the off season. And so we have to do the same thing out in the vineyard and the winery. We, we plan, we use intentionality, and then we embrace what Mother Nature gives us uh, and we do what we can to make the best wine possible. Awesome. That sounds exactly, you know, how you, how you do it. Um, and I, I think a lot of the times either wineries are looking for volume or certain, there, there's certain times when they cut the corners or, you know, they, they pick everything at one time and then they have to adjust in the winery. So it's really interesting to hear about your the intentionality and then the approach, the thoughtfulness through every step of the process. Um, so I think it's one thing I think we didn't really explain to everybody yet is kind of what is Troth and what what is your vision for it? So could you guys just give us the, the brief overview on what Troth is for our listeners and um, kind of where you see it going in the near future? Yeah, Troth is, is a wine designed for uh, wine lovers, uh, designed for collectors. It's uh, what came about when Ray and I had the conversations of what do we need to do to produce a wine that can sit at the table with any of the great wines of the world uh, and represent the Horse Seven Hills and and express uh, our site and our terroir um, in a way that competes with anybody, to, to put it very simply. You know, everybody knows they the first growth Bordeaux, but they don't understand, you know, those all had to start sometime. So there was some time, you know, hundreds of years ago where those first wines came out and people were, you know, uh, first like, wow, if you make it this way, these can be the best in the world. So it's interesting just to kind of look at you guys now and kind of see your vision for the future. Um, can you talk about the wines that you guys create just the, the quick lines? And then I think we'll, we'll move on from there. So, yep. Cabernet is, um, our flagship bridal and that's what we launched with, with our 2018 vintage. Uh, we're adding to that moving forward. We have a very limited run of Sauvignon Blanc coming out this spring. And then we have Syrah. Uh, that'll be our second uh, mainline wine coming out in January of 2023. Uh, Rome Bridals have, have really done a great job in our vineyards. In fact, most of our, maybe not most, but many of the accolades that our customers have earned have been through uh, Rome Bridals. So we wanted to embrace that right now. Both both lovers of Rhone's uh, and Syrah is a natural next step for us. And then we grow 26 varieties uh, in our vineyards. And that's one of the beauties of Washington state is you can put down so many different varieties uh, next to each other. And if you tend each one the right way, they're going to produce uh, great grapes. And so because we have that ability on our farm, Ray and I decided that we'd look at each vintage uh, and find the variety that's having really a breakout or all-star year. And we take that and we make a very limited quantity of that. And we call that Troth Limited. So that's launching this year as well uh, with the 2019 Malbec. And that's 36 cases. 
Nice. It's nice to have the luxury to be able to pick and choose the best grapes rather than, you know, just creating wine from, um, you know, what may, may be there if it was a, an off year or something. Um, so quickly here, last steps on that, like looking forward, I know Troth is, is a young brand. You guys are building it for the long run. Um, you're being very thoughtful about how you're allocating it. Um, I would say one is um, in terms of sustainability, what are you guys thinking on that front? So if you're looking at this as a long-term venture, will, will the temperature change and climate change have any impact on the Horse Seven Hills? Do you think it will benefit? Do you think it will hurt? Sure, I'll cover some sustainability in the vineyard uh, quickly, and then I'll let Ray talk about what he's doing in the winery. Um, but for us, sustainability is very important. Um, as fourth generation farmer, I want to steward this property uh, for the fifth generation. And so in our mind, we see uh, that as, as one of the pinnacles of sustainability, the ability to pass a piece of well-tended property on uh, to the next generation so that they can have an opportunity to um, put it to its best use. Uh, and so respecting nature is, is a core principle here at Andrews Family Vineyards. And a couple of concrete examples of what we've been doing lately uh, this past season. Uh, we had spider mites in a block and spider mites can, can damage the leaves and, and delay ripening. And so rather than go out and spray them and take care of it uh, through that method, we actually um, used a, a predator to the spider mite. It's a little uh, little little beetle that's related to the ladybug. It's called Stethrus punctillum, and it's like a little heat sinker, heat seeker uh, missile for spider mites. And we dropped those out there via drone. Uh, and within a week or two, it, they had spread and taken care of the spider mites for us, and we didn't have to spray. Uh, a couple other examples are in, in trilled blocks. We try not to spray if possible. We try to go uh, completely herbicide free. And so we hand hoe our weeds and we hand sucker. Uh, that requires more hand labor, uh, but that's that's necessary uh, for what we want to do to um, respect the environment in those blocks. Um, one other thing that we're doing is uh, I sit on the board of the Washington Wine Growers and it's about ready to launch a third-party certified sustainability program. So I've been helping in the development of that as a board member, and then we're looking at joining that program as soon as it launches. Yeah, uh, on the on the winery side, it's really pretty simple. I I think you could go all across the world to top properties, and when you go in there and look at the winemaking, it is uh, minimal intrusive practices. You know, some of the tools that you can use to create wine in general, you don't need them when you start with the highest quality grapes. So I pay a lot of attention on the winery side to our water use. Uh, you need to be quite clean, you know, when you're making a, a fermented product like, uh, well, it's, you know, it's, it's food. So um, you have to be clean and that requires water, but it can also be pretty wasteful. And that's really our number one resource in the world is water. So, you know, we minimize down to the bare, bare minimum of what we need to make our wines and, you know, through the sanitation and cleaning processes. And, you know, we, I rarely use hot water, for example, you know, it's, it's great, makes things easy, but you can, you can use cold water and have a lot less waste and the winery side. And then, you know, really there's, there's grapes, we have yeast and we age in barrels. So it's, it's a really simple process when you uh, slim it all the way down, but that um, takes away a lot of wastefulness that could happen on the winery side. Yeah, I love to um, pull back the curtain here on all of these little things that go in 
going to the winery and the, the viticulture. And it's so interesting to see how, if you put all the effort in the vineyard, to your point, Ray, it, it makes, you know, it allows you to kind of be a little more traditional in, in the winery and, and low intervention, as you're saying. So it really all kind of comes together. And it's something most people don't see. Sometimes they'll see a price tag on a bottle of wine and not realize all the, the time and effort that goes into like, like Jeff was saying, like the suckers, like even just like trimming off, you know, some of these bull canes or canes on the, vine, the vines that aren't, you know, they're kind of sucking away water and nutrients from the grapes, like these little things and really making sure the vine can amplify the quality of the fruit. I love that you guys are being able to um, add this detail and color for our, our listeners. But uh, switching gears here off the wine side a little bit, you guys accept uh, cryptocurrency for Troth. Can you tell us a little bit about your your thinking there and and why you um, are interested in in this kind of emerging payment method and in, in technology in general? Yeah, uh, Ray and I are both, I guess, what you'd call crypto enthusiasts, and um, we've been believers in cryptocurrency for quite a while. It, it's taken us uh, on a wild ride lately, but that's kind of how cryptocurrency is. Uh, and so I, I mined Ethereum in 2017 and 2018. Uh, when I first started becoming interested in it, I thought I might as well jump in and see what it was all about. And, and I enjoyed that experience. And, and as I mined it, I became even more, uh, you know, personally invested in learning about it and, um, embracing the future of it as a potential payment method. And so when we launched Trove and we started taking orders uh, this past year, uh, there was no doubt in my mind that cryptocurrency should be part of it because while it is, of course, still very young, not widely, uh, maybe widely understood by the general public yet, it has so much potential that um, we wanted to be an early adopter of it. Uh, and then along the NFT side of things, uh, it, it kind of goes hand in hand. Uh, we think NFTs also have a bright future. Uh, one key area where where we're looking at using them is uh, in the provenance of our wine as it goes out uh, into the world as we grow and get more recognition. And there's a chance for uh, you know uh, sales on the secondary market. Having it tied to the blockchain to prove its provenance, um, we think is going to be a very important part of part of it. Awesome. Yeah, I think it's really apt that you guys are both looking forward in, in both terms of technology and crypto as well as wine. Um, speaking of buying your wine, how do people go about it and what will your allocation model be? Like this isn't going to be just, you know, available on shelves, um, which again goes to your, your point of collectability earlier. So what, what is your guys approach in terms of allowing people to actually purchase the wine? Yeah, our approach is that uh, we are direct to member only at this time. So um, our allocation period for our 2018 release uh, closed up in December. So uh, as of today, um, there's only one way to get Troth. And we've got a, a wine concierge who, who bought a small allocation who's uh, down in California who can sell a little bit of it. But other than that, uh, we don't have any for sale right now. now. Our 2019 vintage will be coming out this fall and uh, we'll have an allocation period for that. So anyone who's interested in, in Troth, go to trode.com join our member list and they'll have an opportunity to purchase an allocation later this year i don't also like i think the logo is pretty unique i think our listeners will have to go check it out but how did you guys come land on that as your 
your symbol for truth. And I think we'll, we'll wrap it up after that. So um, the, the logo, the label, really everything involved in the packaging goes back to what we talked about with intentionality and um, a lot of thoughtfulness at every step in the process, um, which is really necessary to create a, a luxury product. Um, so our logo, uh, that gold um, triangle in the center, that's called an Awin. And what that represents is knowledge, nature, and truth, which uh, you'll see named on the back of the bottle. And we chose that because um, those are our core principles here at Andrews Family Vineyards. Uh, we want to acquire knowledge, respect nature, and embrace truth. And when we found that logo, that already fit what uh, what our principles were. It was it was an easy step to adopt that as our logo. Uh, and then the four gold gold dots above that those represent the four generations that have farmed our property. And then uh, the rest of the label has a lot of a lot of detail in it that sort of tells the story of, of our four generations and what we've done on the family property. Awesome. Yeah, you've you mentioned that to me before and I, I thought that was really interesting and definitely wanted our, our listeners to hear as well. But um, yeah, guys, this has been really interesting. Um, I'm a, a big fan of following the the Troth Project. Um, you know, full disclosure for our listeners, I've also purchased some of these Troth wines, the 2018 allocation, and I'm excited to uh, actually go up to and get to try them. Um, I purchased them and they've been sitting in my my cellar for a few months now. So unfortunately, I don't get up to Napa enough to really tap into that cellar, but I'm excited to try them and looking forward to uh, the next wines coming out this year. So thanks a lot, guys. I appreciate the time. Hey everybody, it's Nick King, co-founder and CEO of Vint. Um, recently, I've, I've been in a big uh, reading trend. Um, it wasn't a New Year's resolution, it was just I was traveling and had some downtime and got back into the, uh, the swing of reading books. So um, one thing that I most recently read was The Almanac of Naval Ravikant um, by Eric Jorgensen. So for those of you who don't know who Naval is, he's he's really popular um, within the startup scene um, on that part of Twitter. He has this um, kind of philosopher, startup founder, investor type of persona um, and finishes book in, in three days. And one one thing that I flagged among a lot of other things is how he talks about um, leverage and his first section is all about building wealth. Um, so he, he talks about the different forms of, of leverage and he, he highlights three. One is um, labor. Um, you recruit a team um, and you manage them. Team grows. It is, um, increasing your output in a um, hopefully nonlinear fashion. Um, second would be money or, or capital. Um, and that scales really well. Um, the, the marginal cost of adding more capital to say an investment fund is, is very low. Um, and then third, and one that I, personally highlighted for us and has got me thinking about a lot of things. Um, he says the, the most powerful and 
most democratic form um, of leverage is products with no marginal cost of replication. So I've been thinking a lot about that and um, kind of what is what is the X factor of of the Vint platform and how does it relate to that? And uh, you know, I I think we we have this really really unique product where we put in a lot of upfront labor and capital um, and time to get um, qualified under Reg A plus. And we've built the tech in-house. Um, there are other ways where you could white label a platform. And yeah, we have one partner for um, transaction processing, but the flow has been built by Patrick and the tech team. Um, and we effectively have this open platform where right now the marginal cost of replicating a new collection is is basically none on our side of things. I have templates that um, I use for the SEC qualification, the um, necessary paperwork for the um, series LLCs and the option agreement. So it takes some time to um, to source the collections, but um, that is is really it. And because of how we operate on payment terms, we don't even need that capital to um, replicate on the supply side. So um, it, it certainly has me thinking of, hey, we have this platform. Um, what else can we add to the supply side? And I've been having conversations and, and really interested, and I'm, I'm really interested in alternative offering styles and um, utilizing this this platform and product that has no marginal cost of replicating um, collections. So um, if you have any thoughts, um, assets you would like to see, new asset classes, really um, anything that you might be interested in um, as an investor on the supply side, or maybe you're a producer and there's ways that we can work together as well. Feel free to reach out to anyone on our team and um, appreciate you all tuning in. As always, have a great rest of your week. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint Wine Investment Podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risk to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.